Hellbentcomicbook.com. What? Who's who said that? Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, you should go. Everybody should go to hellbentcomicbook.com because that's where you can go and sign up on the pre-launch page to my new comic book, Hellbent, which is a kick-ass, high-octane, irreverent supernatural thriller. If you like Preacher, if you like Sandman, if you like works featuring John Constantine or Constantine, depending on how you say it, you're gonna love hellbent so go to hellbentcomicbook.com sign up for the pre-launch page so that way you'll know the second the kickstarter launches because we're going to have some amazing rewards only available on day one and you're not going to want to miss out on that but enough of that for right now i'm going to bring it up later in the episode but we're, let's get into the episode we got an amazing one uh and i'm so excited for you to be here for it let's go hey everybody welcome back to only stupid answers this is a show where we like to talk about movies tv shows Comic books, uh, my name is DJ Wooldridge, and with me today to talk about our subject of westerns and black cowboys is Zaren Burnett to talk about his podcast, Black Cowboys. Zaren, introduce yourself to the kids at home. For anybody that's not familiar with you, uh, let them know who you are and where they can find you. Uh, thanks for having me on, DJ. Uh, my name is Zaren Burnett. I am a journalist. I've been a writer for a long time online. You can find me on Twitter at Zaren3. Uh, I've written for Mel Magazine for a number of years. I've written a lot of essays for Medium. I've written for Playboy for a number of years. And I have kind of bounced around online following my interests, which tend towards crime and historical reconsiderations including cultural evaluations and uh, entertainment uh, criticism so it just kind of ranges it's mostly perspective journalism i'd say uh so obviously you know having you on the show i was listening to the black cowboys podcast it really interests me it's for any of those that haven't checked it out it's a really great podcast i highly recommend it uh but you just talking about you know talking about crime and stuff like that it's like oh the venn diagram is actually a little bit is even closer than i i thought it was and also uh, uh mel magazine is a great outlet so uh they've they've got some good stuff over there so before we get into our main topic for today we like to start off each episode talking about what we're into zaren is there something that you've been watching or doing that you'd like to share with the kids at home yes there is a i don't know i don't see people talking about it online there's a tv show it's a norwegian show it's on hbo europe and it's called the foreigners okay amazing joe is uh I'll, i'll just quote from their like log line uh, flashes of light uh, appear in the water and uh, people from the past start to emerge so you have people from 19th century scandinavia the viking age and the neolithic stone age and then they all show up as time migrants and then they have to make their way in modern times and then they have these cops who have to like help acclimate them to modern times and then obviously because it's europe and it's scandinavia they have like social services and so forth that help <laughs> doing it it's really fascinating when you take the idea of immigration and make it a temporal thing as opposed to a geographical thing. So now these people are legitimately Norwegians. You know, they are actually the ancestors. So you can't be like, oh, they've come here. What are they doing here? But it then also you have all the intersections of what does immigration mean and, and how do you incorporate cultures and so forth and turn it into something that is a, a positive, holistic whole. And so it's a really interesting show. And it's a crime show because it's a one of the Stone Age uh, women gets murdered and they have to try to solve her murder and then it, it just spirals from there it's a fascinating show and it's called Beforeners. i so, recommend so you said it how would we is there is it easy to access for uh us americans you can find it on hbo uh max i believe i think right. it's on h but it's an hbo europe show but they have it on hbo america hbo max or whatever perfect 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 that sounds 
really interesting. And I, do, do you think like watching that, does it give you a sense of like, so for example, uh, recently because of, of Godzilla versus Kong, I watched Shin Godzilla, the most recent Japanese Godzilla and a, and a major um, subplot in that is how much uh, America is up the ass of Japan, like still to this day, like really involved, way too involved and in all the stuff I've got going on there. And as a dumb American, I was like, Oh God, I didn't, I didn't know. You know what I mean? Do you, watching the show, do you, do you, does it give you a sense of like, you know, you talked about social services in a sense of like, Oh, well, hey, actually it's not too bad over there or, or vice versa. Uh, no, definitely. I mean, like I've, I've traveled a lot in Europe and I really like uh, Northern Europe for how they uh, create the values of life being important to the century. They make it central to public life and they make it central to government life and make it central to home life. Everything about life as opposed to say property or acquisition of stuff is what's uh, given an emphasis so this you see that with the kind of modern push away from that which is like oh i want things i want to have a uh, you know capital and money and a good job and these status things and then you see also the time migrants their values are so old and then you see the people who live now start trying to fall back and become so one of the people that her uh one of the characters their ex divorces their okay i guess it would be their ex but their partner divorces them becomes their ex and then marries somebody who lives who's from the victorian era because they like that lifestyle better so you can yeah. see like that conversation that europe always has now stretched out over time and it's really fascinating seeing like where do you put the value of life is it in you know these like they just like sitting there with their tea cozies and being quaint and like that's the rhythms of the life they want and i appreciate that conversation because i think too often we uh, tend to think that there is not one way to live but there is a thrust of life that i like to consider all the possible ways we can engage with our time on earth and there's just a really neat way of doing it and a very poetic way of doing it without having to like put a lot of weight on that message and instead just playing with the idea which is yeah. i thought really nice but mostly you have the crime compelling you through the story so it's, it's this light playful theoretical idea on top of these really heavy really urgent uh you know issues of crime which is like you know why did this person have to be killed yeah i like that a lot i'm definitely going to check it out that sounds really interesting i also like the idea that like uh like you were touching on there i think a lot of times when we look back at um the past it's like well you know they'd much rather be doing what we're doing Mm-hmm. And it's like, and well, in some cases, yeah, I mean, sure, the, uh, we've progressed in certain ways, like indoor plumbing's great, sure, uh, but not necessarily, you know, we, we put that on, and it's like, yeah, but they had their own thing going, like, they didn't, you know what I mean, they, just because they're coming here doesn't mean they would in, embrace all the things that we've embraced, like, for, we've, when we've lived through the history, it's like the frog in, in the, what is it, the frog in the pot, you know what I mean, like, the temperature raised, and now we're here, yeah. so that's really interesting, so, why do you think uh, – what do you think separates – you talked about a little bit going to Europe and, the, and their values. What is it about us as Americans – and I feel like this might touch a little bit on, on what we're going to talk about with black cowboys. Why do we view those things differently when it comes to like our, our family? Like you talk about the, the people in the show, the foreigners and stuff like that wanting the stuff uh the stuff the capital the stuff like that and uh, a lot of that i I feel like a lot of that comes from here from us maybe that's not true but that's what it feels like what do you what do you why do you think we're different in that way what is it about the way that this nation has come about sorry this is a big ass question you were just telling me about the foreigners (laughs) let's okay let's take this from like the inverse which is why did the new world come about right so you have like 
the Ottoman Turkish Empire is holding down the old uh, Eastern Empire of Rome, right? And then they sack Constantinople, and suddenly now you can't go and get all the spices you want to get from India and China and the rest of Asia, right? So now Europe has to find a way to do this, and that pushes them ultimately into the new world. So this one limitation of trade causes this huge expansion that ultimately changes the whole history of the world. Now, because of that, when you get into why do the people come here, it was always opportunity and it wasn't community. It was individualistic opportunity. People came to America to better themselves. Now, you do have the religious people who came here with community in mind and we talk about them. But ultimately, I think most of, of the American cultural thrust comes from this idea of the individual being able to be free of having to pay for taxes and expensive European wars and having to be free of persecution or repression and so forth, having to be finding a way to get free. And by getting free, they break away. And in breaking away, then you go, I want to articulate the world and its values for myself. And so we've done that. America is really good at that. And that's what we've sent out to the world is this message of, oh, I want to be like an American, which means you get to articulate for yourself how you want to be free of tradition, free of family structures, free of these things that have been limitations for a lot of cultures, but ultimately are also their keys of strength. Because like in... In a lot of Asian cultures, you notice that the first name comes last when you say a name. That's because the family is important more so than the individual. It's a very subtle thing, but it comes through. And in the West, it's the opposite. Is the Your individual name is more important than your family name, unless you get into like you know family wealth dynamics. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. But just on individual level, people think of like their name being themselves, their unique name, right? And that stretches. And so now when you have the history of people moving West... They take that idea and they go, oh, I want to go get my piece. I want to go do this thing. So society becomes a a result rather than a planned event. People don't go west trying to build society. They go west to escape society. Society catches up to them and then builds its structures and laws and so forth. And they're like, okay. And the reason that why is because they figure out that if they without that, people cheat, the might makes right. All the things that we know about human nature and animalistic tendencies get played out on in the west when there isn't society. So then people go, okay, I'll take society because it means I don't have to listen to that asshole on the hill who's cutting off the water or whatever. So you get this idea then that we basically in the West, constantly figure out the need for society if we're going to live as a community. So it's a culture constantly just rediscovering the value of community as opposed to moving community forward with you as a presumption of what is human life, which I think is much more true of the old world and the East. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think that's actually a really solid segue into uh, what we're talking about today. So for those that don't know, uh, tell them what Black Cowboys is. Well, tell, them, tell them about your podcast. So Black Cowboys is a show that starts with the little known fact that one in four cowboys were black and or was black. And the fact that they were black is uh, important for a lot of reasons, but also the fact that it's not known is important for a lot of reasons. And I wanted to get into both of those. Why do we not know this? And what does it mean if we did know this? And how would we reimagine America and America's history and America's present if we did know this? So we got into these people, rather than the the idea of Black Cowboys, we got into individual narratives and found our way through American history by looking at these different characters, such as Bass Reeve, Stagecoach Mary, John Horse, and they have very different aspects of the American story, but you stitch them together, you get a very full picture of where we are today and why Black Cowboys were such an integral part of that. And 
also just really they're compelling, amazing American stories. Westerns have the aspect of both myth and adventure and action, but then also this sense of like constantly debating what is freedom, what is justice, what are these elemental things that we think about usually in prosaic or sometimes poetic terms, but mostly in grand terms. And these are in immediate urgent terms. So to combine the history of Black America in the, with these with the urgency of the West, I thought would be very compelling. And it's been born out. A lot of audiences like members like they send me emails or messages saying, I didn't know this, but also this is so riveting. I want to know so much more because it basically makes the history come alive. And that was the goal was to allow people through essentially what I call audio movies, uh, experience the West and then I have their imagination take them the rest of the way there. So that way they're curious to learn more on their own. So it's kind of a, a starting off point, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, I love it. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the Western genre. Uh, they're some of my favorite movies. Um, uh, not as big as it used to be, not as popular as it used to be. So I, I, one, as a fan of Westerns, I enjoy uh, your audio movies, your podcast. <laughs> but also as expanding what we understand of what the west is it actually touches on it, it always kind of baffles me when when you, on this show we talk a lot about you know uh it grew out of talking about superhero stuff but we talk a lot about genre stuff and of course so you, you have to deal with the fan base that is inherently against change or or diversification or whatever and it always kind of feels um uh it, it doesn't make sense to me like it feels like you're self-inflicting you're 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 damaging yourself if you're a fan of the genre because you're just getting more stories from more different perspectives it's it's making a richer experience so even if you're against whatever as a fan you should be able to at least embrace this because it's providing you the 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 broadening of the story so you know you look at something like uh, i've been really enjoying the show warrior on hbo max which takes place in i think it's the late 1800s san francisco it is quote unquote based on the writings of bruce lee it features a primarily asian cast um but something that's interesting as watching this show while i listen to your podcast it's interesting how uh even though this show the half the cast is asian american or, or asian and half the cast is white but there's not a lot of black people around there's not a lot of hispanic people around there's not a lot of even in even in this show that is progressive in a lot of ways it's still a very binary look at at race you know it's like well we're talking about this group and it's like yeah but literally every yeah. everybody was around they're all there uh in san francisco even more so I mean, it's one of those places that was like america's biggest version of everybody is there because it's you know had so much of the 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 East from uh, the, the, the maritime trade, but then also everybody wants to get there coming around the South. So you have both uh, the Atlantic trade and the Pacific trade and everybody is in San Francisco. It yeah. was one of those, you cannot have a story that's just going to be two little groups, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's in, and I think like the cool thing about your show is again, is broadening that understanding. And, and I, I like the hope that more stories like this will, this, this will grow. These conversations will grow. So talk a little bit about, you know, so you just explain what Black Cowboys is. How did you how did you get there? What was the process like? Did iHeartRadio come to you? Did you go to them? What, where? How did this How did this start? Okay, so uh, I got very lucky in the sense that uh, iHeart came to me. Uh, I I've been writing stories for a long time, and my stories often uh, involve a historical aspect because I think it's important to provide context. And so often these days, when you're reading a story online, it starts yesterday and goes forward, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted it something where, okay, how can I weave in history so people have more context and they can learn some stuff while they're reading about modern events and current events. And uh, by doing that, 
editors liked it and they're like, oh, this is working out really well. So and then they gave me more of a carte blanche. So then I started going wider and wider. And one of the uh, the people at iHeart was looking around for they were, they were about to start a new thing called iHeart Originals, which was going to be limited episode series like Black Cowboys, where they say, uh, you know, we went out to creators to find people who we thought would make good podcast voices. Right. We wanted to find new talent. So they they contact people they know and someone they know, Taylor Lorenz, uh, is a writer for The New York Times. She recommended that uh, that Jason English, executive producer for Black Cowboys, check out Mel. And he did. And he liked Mel. And he was like reading. He caught a bunch of stories I wrote. He sent me a nice email saying, hey, would you ever think about doing a podcast? And quite frankly, I was like, ah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started thinking about it a little bit. I was like, you know, I'm not a, you know, like most people, I'm not a huge fan of my voice. I don't want to listen to like me talking for a long time. But that's I was just like, eh, I'm resistant. That's why I'm a writer, right? I like mm-hmm. to be able to write. Then you hear that in your own ears. You're between your ears. You hear the words. Then he's like, you know, just think about it. So I thought about it. And I was like, you know what I'd really like to do is a story about black cowboys uh, because I used to be in Hollywood and I wrote a, a screenplay about Nat Love back in the day. And I yeah. couldn't get anybody to go for it. Producers loved it. But they're like, this won't sell overseas. No one wants to go for this story. People don't like the West and they definitely don't want a, a, a Western about a black guy. It just doesn't make sense to them. And I was like, no, this is why we need to make it. This is why. <laughs> so I had this story I'd wanted to tell for a long time. So I, I started telling Jason, he's like, wow, you're all fired up about this. And we got on a phone we started talking about it. And he's like, I think this can be a show. So then I developed it. He's like, oh, wow, this is great. And I didn't just focus obviously on that love. I started picking out all these different people. And we came up with a season and then uh, I, had, I had so much passion and research ready for it. They're like, can you buy, do you mind being the first one out of the box? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. So we just started making the show over the winter and uh, I got, uh, I was assigned some researchers and then I would tell them who I was wanting to research. And then they'd send me back a, a dossier of like the big, uh, big points of their life with all the, the, the dates and names and all the stuff that they did that would be kind of a fact a preliminary fact check. And then I went through and did all my own research and, read a ton of books and mm-hmm. uh, all those like I don't know, like 40 or so books that uh, I had to go through and I uh, just had huge legal pads and I just filled out everything and then after that I started making scripts and then I got a really cool producer Ryan Murdoch who's been working with me on narrative because he is really good at podcasts so he's like oh yes listeners want smaller words listeners want these and he started oh, let, yeah. letting me and the difference between a podcast and writing for the page and so then we had like a really good working relationship and it just came together and i kept telling him i was like look i want to do sound effects i want to have the world kind of come alive but i don't want it to feel like a, a radio play i want it to feel like it just kind of momentarily comes alive and then disappears again you know mm-hmm. he's like oh, i like that and so we started talking about the production and then after that it was just uh kind of like write the first episode and start going and then we did and he and i found a flow that worked and after that uh it's just been a conversation about how like how big of a story can i tell mm-hmm. sometimes it's too big you got to knock this one down i'm like okay uh, well, I was just listening. We talked about uh, before we were on air that I was just listening to the episode about Esteban, and I could imagine there was some like, "Well, we gotta, yes, we gotta yes. turn this back." Yeah, John Holmes and Esteban are two uh, episodes where it's like, "Look, we're gonna need to truncate this. We're gonna need to summarize this. We're gonna need to like, can we skip over this to get to this?" I was like, "Well, can we just kind of like like a skipping stone, just touch it?" And he's like, "Okay, yes, yeah." So conversation well all that it's interesting you talking about the your struggles with the your script with nat love because it echoes i was um i was watching an interview with the lucas brothers um Mm -hmm. who co-wrote the the uh, judas and black messiah which is great and not that you know these companies are great about giving out their streaming numbers but from what i understand did really really i want to say based on the stuff i was looking at judas and black messiah was second only to godzilla versus kong as far as 
HBO's numbers, but it was a similar like they're like I mean like Ryan Coogler's on producing and everything, and they're like ah, people are like I don't know, and it's like what do you what do you mean you don't know? Like what's there? What's <laughs> not to know? Like what are you talking about? Um, so I'm glad that these these through this podcast these stories are getting out there. Do is there is there now that the show's out there, the show's doing well, are you like dusting off your Nat Love script? You're like, all right. <laughs> yeah, I can't talk about anything too much, but there's been a, a lot of interest about how people could develop these into uh, new properties. So I've, I've been t- talking to uh, entertainment people about that, and they're all very excited because they're like, we didn't realize that these stories were so compelling, and, the, and people just love them. I was like, yes, I've been trying to, I've been saying this for years. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going Finally, now people can see that the Black West is is not just this like unicorn that we can maybe one day find or something. It yeah. is something really should be covered. So, so uh, I know a lot of a big part of your um, your show and especially the early episodes is your your dad and your relationship with your dad and how he exposed you to these things. Is it one of those like without that you wouldn't know and people like need that type of person and now you your show is that type of person to let you in on this it's not even it's not even shouldn't be even a secret but it kind kind of is like is you know your dad was kind of your gateway into that i would definitely say you need a a gateway person because it's like opening a door you didn't know was there so in that sense once that door is open then you can go exploring it on your own but you don't know to open that door and so my father very for me i was very young when he did it he showed me like and uh, did it as a as a, a protective like my father would always tell me bedtime stories so it was very much like a, a merging of my imagination and my self-confidence as a little boy so he told me things to a picture and then i could picture myself doing them but they were real so i had a much bigger and richer story of america to move into as i grew up right yeah. but by doing that uh my father gave me something that i also then wanted to give to others because not everybody's going to have that person in their life and this isn't something that we should have to do one at a time this is something <laughs> That door should be, I wanted to basically put a big sign over it, Black Cowboy History Here. So that way people can go and find it and 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 be compelled by it because it isn't, I don't know, it, it shouldn't be a, a secret. It shouldn't be like a, a little club that you have to know a password to get in. You have to know like, oh, there were Black Cowboys. Yes, you can come in and we'll tell you the stories. You know, it should be yeah. very much, this is America's story. This is not just a Black story. This is literally an American story. And these are Americans who are Black. So we can talk about it from that perspective and we can talk about it from them as Black people. But both perspectives are legitimate and should be talked about. So anybody can talk about them as Americans and everybody else should appreciate them as a Black Americans. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of, of that, I think this is a good um, segue into, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about earlier, uh, big fan of Westerns, but the, a lot of people aren't right now like it's not it's not it's not as popular as it used to be it used to be like the genre now it's not um why do you think now is an important time to to let people in on on this and and i guess also why do you why do you think westerns even even though they're not as popular are still important to our culture well okay so you have a bunch of comic books right behind you i do i do why are comic books important to us as movies? Because they have replaced Greek myths as a way for us to imagine people that are bigger and more grand and grander than we are, but yet still have human failings and human frailties and human like uh, like emotional hangups, right? So yeah. they're human on one level, but they're supersized, right? Well, the West is kind of that, but for society. If, if the hero is blown out by the superhero, the society is blown up by the West, right? Because mm-hmm. you can now look at what is what are American values, what is independence, what is all these things that we want to look at. But also, most importantly, if you notice with the history of the West, it pretty much is a way for us to make sense of 
national trauma, things like war. Like we win World War II, and so you see this huge amount of Westerns because we now have to decide what does it mean to be an American. So we look at our personal mythos. We re-entrench in ideas, and we do it symbolically. So the West, the the, the symbolic West, the John Ford West, becomes mm-hmm. the America that we would like to be, wish to be like to think of ourselves as maybe could be one day even though it's in the past it becomes an aspirational version of ourselves as we're now reconsidering ourselves out of the trauma of the west what did we fight for what was the freedom we won and how do we deal with the fact that we still have jim crow in america even though we're fighting fascists and talking about freedom overseas so how do we arrange that well we we look at that in the west we look at the uh the the native americans that were had to be uh, depopulated and moved forcibly for this and so what was the value of that and we look at what were what were these white men of the past trying to do when they were taking this land and so they turned it into a grander thing because if if they looked at it after coming out of world war ii with an honesty it might have been like too much of a shock for the country so they had to tell themselves a corrective myth and then that becomes obviously not true and then in the 60s as you know the society starts to come apart and the war is now internal we see that the west changes and you get the clint eastwood harder grittier uglier west that comes out and then people move away from that john wayne mythos and into a much more how do we examine who we are and then you get into the 70s and like the warren Beatty in the west where it's like this much not just gritty but like trying to be more emotional and interior. So what is the interior of the West and not just the grand gestures? What is the what is the meaning of the value of the soul of a man in the West? You know, these are mm-hmm. big considerations. And right now we haven't been needing that, but I think that because society has been frayed by the pandemic, I would not be surprised to see West Westerns have a resurgence as we start to reimagine America after our national trauma that we've just gone through. I think it would, I would not be surprised at all if we started reimagining America by looking at our past through cinema, which is what we've done over and over again. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. With that in mind, obviously, it's like uh, it's hard to predict stuff. What do you think that hypothetical future Western looks like as we, as we deal with this trauma? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more uh, like first contact stories, you know, people like dealing with uh, populations running into Native Americans who have never dealt with Europeans or never dealt with uh, people from the Asian extractions. Right? I think there'll be much more we- uh, stories of like, uh, OK, Karen Joy Fowler has a story about a first contact story, a, a novel where Asian uh Asian populations in, in the West in San Francisco meet up with Native Americans. And that's not a story we typically imagine. Like, yeah. imagine like an Asian gunfighter going out and getting lost in Nevada and being saved by a Native American tribe and them getting together and going on some quest for some lost gold or whatever. We Love don't it. ever, see the, you know, we don't ever see those Westerns. So I think we'll start to see that is now we can go, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be a white cowboy and it can be anybody who is in the West. And then we can look at what those stories are like. And I think that now that the palette has been refreshed in a way that we haven't, you know, ever really seen it'll be really fascinating to see what creators come out and go okay i want to tell a story of a samurai who gets uh, brought over to the west and then decides stop being a samurai and becomes like you know some kind of like payroll guard in the west and you're like wait like, that's a legitimate possible thing that you could show and you could find the historical precedent and i think those stories are going to be fascinating to see which is then recommitting ourselves to what diversity is in America, like really living up to the ideals of like, oh, we all are like what they used to call a melting pot. And then later on, I think they tried to calling a salad bar. But the idea that we're <laughs> together, that is what we're trying to right now work our way through. And we've been talking about it through these really clumsy things of like, oh, cancel culture or culture wars over stuff. And those are bullshit ways of uh, and reactionary ways of doing it. And I think that the West is a much more soulful or Western is a much more soulful way for us to do that exact same thing, which is to reconsider who we are by looking backwards and then looking forwards at the same time and then meeting those in the present right now, 
on a movie screen. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like this, this idea that the, in, in a lot of ways, all movies are this, but Westerns in particular are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And yeah. so I think that's something that makes a, like a movie like The Searchers really engaging. Uh, cause, right. cause like I watched that when I was older and you're like, oh, this is somebody figuring out that they're racist. Like, and I'm not talking about the character. I'm talking about the people making the movie. You're like, oh wait, we're, we're racist. <laughs> what, do we, what do we do with that? And that's what that's what makes it engaging. And like I'm I'm a bigger fan of the spaghetti westerns. Once upon a time in the West is one of my all time favorite movies. You look at that. Henry Fonda is the bad guy in that. This idea, like the blue, the guy that he's the he's the guy that turned the twelve angry men around. Like he's the guy. You know what I mean? And but now, like, wait, he could actually be the villain. We mm-hmm. could we could be the villain. And I think that's and, and what were you gonna say? Are we the baddies? It's like that it, like one hundred percent. Uh, great sketch. Love that sketch. And it comes to my mind uh, too often <laughs> uh, in our culture today. Um, and then even then you see the Western outside of even America, like uh, the proposition, which is set in Australia. Australia has some very good Westerns, which which I as an outsider of Australian culture, I interpret those movies as them engaging with the fact that literally outside their door, everything wants to kill them. This whole landscape just wants them dead. <laughs> what do we do with that? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Before we go any further, have you heard the news? That's right. I have a new comic book. Years in the making. Finally ready for your beepers to check it out. I want you guys to know about Hellbent. And to do that, you're going to need to go to hellbentcomicbook.com. All right, that'll take you to the Kickstarter launch page where you can register and you can be notified when the campaign launches. That's important because there's going to be some rewards that are exclusive to the first day. You're going to want to be there day one so you don't miss out. And the best way to do that is to go to hellbentcomicbook.com and register. Hellbent is a supernatural thriller that's similar to some of my favorite comics like Preacher and Sandman. So if you're a fan of those stories or just a fan of kick-ass characters fighting demons and cults and all of that stuff... You're going to want to go to hellbentcomicbook.com to register so you can be one of the first ones to hop on that Kickstarter. Also, you can check out a behind-the-scenes discussion with my co-writer, Jana July, and the artist, Heather Vaughn, by going to patreon.com slash onlystupidanswers. So give that a listen if you want to know more about the process of making comics. But before you do that, go to hellbentcomicbook.com and register. God damn it. Do it. All right. Now back to the show. Um. You talked a little bit about about first contact with Native Americans. I've got a couple questions with that. I will say I didn't I didn't talk to you about this before we went on air, but it was on my mind because I was just listening to the episode of Esteban, and you kind of talked about you know for those that go listen to the podcast episode if you haven't, but for those that haven't, basically there's uh, what when did the when did the expedition take place? Fifteen uh, twenties into the fifteen thirties. So it's a massive expedition gets down to essentially four guys, and the, like right at the is Hernan Cortez. Like Hernan Cortez is landing. He's, he's fought the Aztecs in 1519. And now we're like uh, 13, 14 years later. And you have wave after wave of Spanish uh, coming over who are trying to be opportunistic. And they get these uh, dispensations for the king that I can have this land or that land. Uh, you can do this. And so they're moving now from Cuba into Mexico. And this 
this is the point where uh, they decide to take uh, La Florida, which is, uh, you know, Florida, which is uh, Ponce de Leon tried. And then uh, another guy, Leon tried, and uh, he was more in the Carolinas, but they're trying to make it on the east. And so this is the first one that arrives. It's the Panfilo de Narvaez expedition. They land in Tampa Bay. And the whole idea is that he gets to basically uh, get all of the land going straight across the bottom of America. So that means like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and then also Florida. And just a straight band, that's going to be his land. All he has to do is make a couple towns, a couple forts, and he has like a year or so to do it. And then boom, everything goes to shit. And he like they, 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 they wreck the ships, they run into hurricanes. And it ends up being that by the time they have walked from Tampa Bay up to where Florida turns, there's now like going to be a very small uh, group of men left. And then they get on barge rafts that they build after killing all of their horses and slaughtering them and turning their bodies into sails and, and, and a rope that they can tie logs together. Then they manage to float along the bottom of the, of the, of the American coastline. So basically skirting along where the Mississippi comes out, they get pushed out into the Gulf of Mexico by the outflow of the Mississippi, managed to get back in because of currents, and then they land in Texas. And after within just a few months of landing, there's only four people left from an expedition of hundreds. Yeah. And it's just these three Spaniards and one African slave, Esteban the Negro. And then they, after that point, walk across America. And, and I can say as somebody that grew up in Tampa, you should have just let it. No, you didn't need that land. It's, it's just a miserable swamp. You didn't need it. Um, anyway... Um, after they they land there you talk about how they basically made their way as healers but something you touch on uh, uh for a little bit is if basically they're disease factories like they're just going and infecting what what was the Im- impact of that because because you kind of briefly touch on this might be one of like the the, the skipping stones how the how much europeans bring their diseases impacted the native cultures by the time we typically get to Native or the Westerns and Native American stories uh, centuries later. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when uh, you have the, the, there's Cabeza de Vaca, who is the treasurer, for, he's the Spanish treasurer. He's the number two in charge of this expedition. He's one of the survivors. And then you have these two captains, uh, Castillo uh, and uh, uh, Durantes. Uh, so uh, captains Durantes and Castillo and Esteban uh, are the subordinates, if you will, to Cabeza de Vaca, right? And as they're traveling, they have, uh, the at first they are enslaved, but it's a different type of slavery. They're more like they're captives of the, the natives they come a, a, across. They have to live that way for years. When they then start to, uh, what allows them to survive is the fact that early on, they are willing to do these healing exercises where they're breathing on the Native Americans, which is part of what the Native Americans consider a healing ritual. So they ask the, the Europeans to do this because to them, they have these mystical powers because they came out of the sea. They're these people from, they call them the children of the sun. They are these special people. They don't look like anybody. Three are white. One is black. They're all naked. They just don't look like anybody they've ever seen. So they're like, these must be some powerful figures. So please, can you breathe on our sick? And when they do it, it works. One of the, one of the early healings they do works. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, these guys have great power. This is amazing. So they become this valuable commodity and that allows them to stay alive. And then they get passed from one tribe to the next as healers. And they end up doing like uh, surgery, like actual surgery. Cabeza de Vaca does like an open heart surgery where he pulls an arrowhead out of a guy's chest or actually out of his back, but he does like open heart surgery to get it out because it's right next to his heart. Anyway, he's they're doing these like real medical procedures and they're working. So it becomes that they uh, 
are in one way a gift to the people that they want to pass along. But at the same time, they don't recognize that because you know there's no germ theory, nobody knows what they're doing. They're passing along all these invisible killers. And at this time, it's a hugely populated area. Cabeza de Vaca constantly notes how many people they see, how many well-traveled paths, how there's like highways of trade going through North America, crisscrossing ways going down to South America. And they're clearly trading things that you can only get down in South America, copper and, and different tropical bird feathers. And so there's this hard physical evidence that these people have an uh, intercontinental trading network and it's hugely populated. There are cities in that, that he describes, you know, and then because of these early, you know, early Europeans like Cabeza de Vaca and, and the Esteban and Esteban, the, well, the African, but the, they end up passing on diseases that by the time that the Europeans, the non-Spanish Europeans, so basically the British, the, the Dutch, the French, when they start arriving on the Atlantic seaboard, almost 90% of the population is gone. By the early 1600s, 90% of the population that the Spaniards would have encountered is gone and decimated. So when they get there, the English talk about how there's these empty woods and this this the virgin soil waiting to be, because they have been the people have died, they died of disease. So it's not that this had been left for Europe to just find these virgin woods that were not being uh, used and, and they're not being inhabited. It was that disease that had wiped out the population and left no evidence because they didn't have the same types of structures and physical evidence. Although, I mean, there is all sorts of stuff throughout the Missouri, the, the Mound Hill people, there is lots of evidence, but it wasn't such that the Europeans were con- like confounded by just empty cities of stone buildings. And, yeah. that, and so that's not what they found because they didn't find that they couldn't imagine that people weren't there or the people had once been there. So yeah. it was a, a real, real tragedy. And it's one of the only records we have of how populous North America was because Cabeza de Vaca constantly points it out. And he's one of the earliest people. And then after that, you only get these like Spanish friars commenting on it, but it's from a much different standpoint where they're talking about souls to bring to heaven. And it's yeah. not so they're like, oh, I'm a, I admire these people. Look how well they're doing. It's much more we can bring these people to God or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I don't think, you know, obviously we, you know, we, people know that, you know, we brought diseases. I don't I did not know the scope of it of yeah. of the impact that that had and it really like i one of the you talk about in that episode one of the tribes that they met like was pretty immediately like no nah, we don't want these guys around and normally in the western stories like oh those are the bad native americans and now it's like is this actually a pretty compelling argument that that was the right response like hey uh-uh you guys keep going we don't want you here get get out because we don't know what you're bringing so keep going keep <laughs> going good seeing you you get any closer we're gonna shoot you full arrows please get out um but also <laughs> those people are still here so <laughs> yeah so hey um something that i really uh like about your show is that you don't um you don't sugarcoat it you don't sugarcoat these people you you engage with them as people um uh flaws and all and specifically i think where that it, listening to your show that where that comes to um to the forefront the most is with their interactions with native peoples talk a little bit about the not only the dynamics there in the history but when you're researching it your your feelings about all that that's a a really good question um so i have like uh some native ancestry it's limited i would never go and say oh i'm native but i I, it has always been something that's been in this family and like we very clearly know like where that native uh, blood is so it's been something that i i feel that even when i was young native efforts to stay alive and to get their progeny forward it ultimately resulted in me 
So I owe something to that community, even if I can't say that I am of that community or that I'm part of that community, I'm of that community. So reading this, it was like reading your cousins beating up each other. You know, it's like it was really uh, as I read about, say, for instance, Nat Love story. He is a cowboy who is basically trying to move cattle from Texas ranges and Arizona and New Mexico ranges to the farm to the big cattle towns like Dodge City, Kansas, right? And in doing that, they encounter bands of natives in Indian territory who are have been dispossessed and have now basically turned to banditry or to some kind of like, you know, subsistence like uh, raids so they can have food to eat. These are not people who are trying to like steal this cattle and go sell it elsewhere and make a profit. And they're choosing people trying to survive. So he then sees this and takes the view of the American expansionist position of these red devils need to die. And you read it, you're just like so horrified that this man who was raised in slavery had been oppressed, taken, had his freedom taken from him at birth, and then had been raised by a master, gets free and knows what that type of like um, profits over people mindset leads to. And yet still he advances it when he has a, when he's given a choice, he doesn't then go, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not going to shoot these natives because this is wrong that we're doing. And you read it. And not only does he not ever really wrestle with it, he actually advances the argument and defends it and says aggressively that these Indians were made better by death and stuff. And it's just like horrible to read, but then you just have to really sit there in the time and go, okay, what is he thinking? Well, as we know personally, when people are traumatized, they often will identify with the source of trauma as opposed to the freedom from trauma. So people then become the traumatizer. If they if they have been abused, they become an abuser. We see this over and over again. So he follows that same cycle. So ultimately, I see him as a victim. I mean, I, I know vic victim uh, language is difficult for a lot of people to hear, but yeah. I see him as somebody who has been abused and then becomes the abuser. So he's part of a cycle. And I, I have to want I wanted people to see that and go, I may think of this guy as a hero for certain aspects of what he's done. But I also see him as a human being, which means he is flawed and what he's done. Some of the things he's done is inexcusable. And I can still respect him for being a paragon of freedom to me as a little boy. But then as I got older and I learned more about what he did, I had to recapitulate or I had to reconsider what who he is to me. And in doing so, I both became a, a more complex and, and more connected person, but I also lost a little bit of a hero. But, but I don't think that heroes are something we need to have as much as a realistic connection with others. And heroes are a symbolic thing we use to say the values of others. Because what do heroes do? They ultimately sacrifice themselves for the group. They try to save others. They say that other people are more important than them. So if we're looking at what a hero does, we have to look at their example and say, how can, how can they, how can their message better connect us to community? And that's what Nat Love's story ultimately did. And I wanted people to see that is we can look at this man and learn from him and say, he made terrible, horrendous mistakes, fatal mistakes, ugly mistakes, even though he was also a paragon of freedom at, at, a, at a certain level. So we can look at these things and say, we can hold two opposing thoughts in our heads at one time. And I think that's important to do if you're really honestly considering American history, because there's the American people, and then there's the American country or nation or history of government. And these are not the same thing, and yet people use them interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, like, um, on, on a broad scale, like, there's, there's a uh, reckoning with that, with you know, going all the you know, George Washington stuff like that, you know, in, in, in our culture. And it's important to you can I, I think you're right in that you can be proud of the positive things that a person represents to you or to your history, while also acknowledging that they're not perfect. And it's not, you know, that's, that's, it's an important thing that we should all do.
Yes, exactly. And, and as much as we can, I think it's important to have heroes, but to never turn a hero into something that's not human. So, no. and if human, they have flaws. So I love Charlie Parker as a great jazz musician, but acknowledge he was a terrible husband and father, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking about that a little bit, something, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, crime stuff earlier on. We're talking about Westerns and I think an important part of both genres, you know, obviously the outlaws, an important part of the West as well, is the idea of a personal code of of and especially when you're in the west and you don't have quote unquote civilization or those laws and i know this on on in the podcast you have a conversation about this with your father um can you talk a little bit about this idea of of a personal code and what that means to you and how that kind of what that kind of means to our culture because in a way like we treat laws as these immutable things but it's like but it's a code that we either all agreed on or was forced upon us. It's not, it's that we made it up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. They're not like the laws of gravity. It's, it's not quite the same. So yeah. I would say that there, there are, there's law and order, which is something that we, we try to create it. It is an experiment. It is an ongoing thing. We amend it. We change it, but it is not fixed, but yet we act like it is fixed. And there are laws that date back to Moses. We still have There are laws that we made just we, uh, recently in the last couple of weeks. So law is always changing. And it's a, basically a, a way for us to describe how we can best live together. But then there, that's the law. Then there's the other part, which is order and law and order. Are act, they, people often act like it's one thing. And then really order is more about how we maintain the structure of society as it is right now. How do we keep things from becoming too tumultuous or too uh, provocative in a way that, because like you said earlier, people don't like change. So order basically kind of slows down the process of change. And then that makes it so people can feel comfortable that today and tomorrow will be somewhat similar. And they go, okay, I can make plans for tomorrow based on today or whatever it is, however you want to look at that. Then along comes the other idea, which underpins all of this, which is justice and justice is so different than law and order. I mean, like Dr. King says that justice is love and practice. It is like what you, when you see love and practice, that is justice. And I agree that basically justice is our best version of what we know to be true and right and good. And we often know what justice is and it sometimes doesn't look like law and order. And, mm-hmm. and being a black American, my father wanted me at a very young age to have an understanding of that and have my own opinions about that and have a, a relationship with justice that was separate from law and order and to not count on law and order to provide me justice and not to expect that justice and law and order would be the same or would even be the same conversation. So when somebody said something about law and order, not to hear justice. And when somebody said something about justice, not to bring in law and order and to keep these conversations separate in my mind. And by doing that, it meant also that I had to have my own code. So he taught me, you need to decide what it is you feel is just, and you need to be able to say what you're willing to lose to maintain that and what you're willing to stand up for. And that makes you a central figure in the process we all share called justice, which means I know what I'm willing to fight for and to die for and so forth. And as I thought about those deeply, so I don't have to have that question in the moment. I can act in the moment because I've already thought about it. I have a code that I live by. Just like if you saw a fire, you would know what you would do. If I saw somebody beating on somebody across the street, I know what I would do. I didn't have to be like, oh, wait, what do I do? Because I have a code. So my father gave me a way to act in a just way, according to my own standards. And in a lot of ways, ironically, the way that he taught me to do that is by talking about outlaws, because an outlaw has to have their own code of justice, because they are saying, I'm separate from law and order, but I still have to relate to other people. And I still have to know what is right 
and wrong. Even if I may do wrong, I still have to know what it is. And then I also have to have my own code that, as my father points out in the episode, keeps me out of the maw of law and order. Part <laughs> of your responsibility as an outlaw is to stay free. So you got to figure out a way to have your code not just put you on a fast track to the hangman's noose or behind bars. So yeah. that was also part of it. My dad's like, look, if you're going to get into crime, you got to be smart at it. He didn't say don't do crime. He was like, you have to be no, like, I'm not going to say what you're doing is a crime that I oppose because maybe you've decided this is not a crime. You're OK with it. So let's say you want to uh, grow pot, right? At the yeah. time, that was illegal. So I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. He's like, well, you have to be smart about it. And then that was, he didn't have a problem with it because, you know, he smokes pot, I smoke pot. It was something we both agree is a good and right thing to do. So yeah. then it would be, how do you be smart about it? So for us, it was in ju- the, the, the justice part was it's wrong to say something like a plan could be illegal. Now, we're not going to go and like, fight about it. We're just going to do our thing and try to do it in a way that doesn't impinge upon anybody else. So I'm not out in front of my house smoking a joint, watching the kids walk to school because that would not be fair. That means now I'm putting, I'm breaking my code, which is anything I do should not impinge upon somebody else's sense of freedom and justice and so forth. And so it is very much a way of like, you think of uh, justice as traffic, it's a way to negotiate your car without having to need the white lines on the road to tell you where to be. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And speaking of justice, and I know we've already I've touched on this, we talked a little bit about before we went on air. I think one of the things I found really interesting about your show is um, the West, uh, a, a big part of uh, a cornerstone of every Western is the idea that uh, of freedom, and it, it represents a lot of American freedom. And, uh, you know, going all the way as recently to Red Dead Redemption 2, a big part of of the threat to the West is the encroachment of civilization and, quote unquote, law and order. Uh, but in, in, listening to your podcast, that's a much more uh, visceral threat. It's a much more tangible threat. It's not we're going to lose the abstract notion of freedom. It's like, no, the I left that specifically so I could be free. And so I think that's a very interesting dynamic in your show. Bass Reeves is a perfect example of that. Here is somebody who was born in slavery. He has a master who teaches him to shoot a gun, but not to read. He goes off to the Civil War with his master. They get into possibly an argument about his freedom. They're playing cards. He knocks his master out and then walks out of the fucking Civil War and walks and joins basically the Indian Territory and finds his way to freedom. And then he ultimately becomes a, a member of the you know the government. He becomes a federal marshal. He becomes a, a, a member of civilization and an enforcer of the laws and civilization and what is his repayment by towards the end of his life he is relegated to being a second-class citizen he is told that he is black and he is and according to laws is separate but equal according to the 1896 Plessy versus ferguson supreme court judgment towards the end of his life his reward for being willing to sacrifice his life for the cause of american society the cause of civilization and the cause of justice is to be told you're nothing better than barely better than a slave so that is a great betrayal. And that is like he had been fighting for all people to be able to live equally under the law. And instead, he gets reminded by the law he's not equal to the others. I mean, that is very much an American story. And I think it's important that people understand how that process occurs and how you get from the Rutherford B. Hayes, like uh, uh, com- the, the compromise of Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877 to the 1896. In that 20 or 19-year period, you have a major pivot of American society that we are still now only undoing. So it is not something that is, this is the past. This is the history we're living in. And that's when that hinge of history changed. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Bass Reeves, that's a great uh, segue into, we've got some questions from the discord. Sure. Um, STS 2084 asks, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to amend this question just a little bit. Why isn't there a good Bass Reeves movie or show, or is there one? And I've just missed it. Um, uh, you can correct me if there is a Bass Reeves movie. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, 
I forget what it's called. Uh, it's not that great. It's an independent movie, uh, or you know, it's a, a, a smaller budget film. Uh, it was made a couple years ago. It's not that great. There is a there was a movie that Morgan Freeman tried to make starting in the late '90s. He has a production company and he had a Bass Reeves script and he shopped it around. And Morgan Freeman at the end of the 90s would have been amazing Bass Reeves. And he mm-hmm. loves Black Cowboys. He loves what he wanted to play this part. He tried for 20 years to get that movie made. He's still essentially trying, but now he's aged out of the role. Yeah. So he can't play that figure that we want him to play. So now people are looking to Denzel Washington and there is that same script and it's been floating around. And possibly now that Hollywood has realized that they're losing billions of dollars every year by not having more stories of with people of color and particularly black Americans. They, I think are now ready just because of the business end to put the money into these stories. So I think they're looking going, wait a minute. So this vast re story, what could we do with that? So I believe that right now they're kicking the tires on that idea. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Denzel Washington uh, playing Bass Reeves in the future because it is an amazingly perfect movie story. This man is somebody, he had to go and hunt down his own son and bring him to justice. I mean, like he had every aspect, both the personal, the the, the national, the cultural, the like the, the grand sweep of connecting from the basically the Civil War to well, not quite the civil rights the way Nat Love gets there, but you have like most of American history that you can stitch to the modern era from the era where people really go, oh, that's the distant past. He connects American history in a way that is vital and important, but also just so fucking cool. I mean, yeah. his shootouts and the way he does his detective work and the way he was as a cop and like he's in 14 different shootouts, never loses. I mean, like yeah. that's just incredible. And he has numerous times that he's talking about like bullets passing through his clothing and shooting off his belt buckle and his hat. So he's not like just lucky. I mean, he's more than lucky. He's lucky and good. So he's an amazing, perfect cinematic character. And I would love to see somebody make it. I don't know... Uh, if any director right now is like personally is like actively working on it, but I'd be, I'd be willing to bet uh, at least one of my fingers that is going around Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we, we've been talking about this through the whole uh, show, but that's one of the cool things about Westerns. That's one thing about cool thing about like crime movies is you get an opportunity to talk about like real things, real issues, real parts of America, but also you get cool shootouts and people on horseback and chases and all the shit that you want to see. Exactly. You get like, you can do it in like that Tarantino-esque way where you look at history as something that can be cool. Like yeah. I think a lot of people think history is something that is dusty. And I'm like, no, history should be cool and vital and lots of slapping and fighting and fucking. It, it's it's us. Nothing has changed. They weren't mm-hmm. dusty just because it was back then. They were just as likely to want to you know fight for what mattered and cheat and, and lie and steal and also then gossip and do all the stuff we do. They're just like us. They were wearing different clothing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this goes to um, uh, Sabretooth Ewok asks, if you had an anthology series, what stories would you really like to tell over the seasons? And of course, I would say that your podcast is an anthology, so each episode is a different different cowboy. But I think, uh, I guess, I want to ask, who do you think is, is of the people that you've covered, is most ready for their big adaptation? And also, talking about all the stuff that happened to Bass Reeves, is it are these characters better suited for movies or for like a, a series? Cause so much happens in their lives. You know what I mean? Like movies are great, but like they, it, there's enough there that could be a show. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, some of them I would say could be, you could make a series. Uh, Bass Reeves could easily be a series, just his life. Um, I would say Nat Love is another one because of uh, the amount of people that he met that were interesting. You have so many stars that you could uh, get to play these 
fun characters from the past. I think uh, Cherokee Bill, he, he he squeezes in so much outlaw life into such a short period of time. I don't know if you could turn his life into a season. I think you could if you were really creative and, and wanted to get into the emotional dynamics of his relationship with his brothers, relationship with his mother's relationship with his father's relationship with his girlfriend. Those parts, you could definitely turn it into a season. But if you just follow him as an outlaw, you would, I think, get tired by like episode five of blowing up trains or whatever. You know? So like, <laughs> have to get into the emotional context. But um, then also... Like the John Horse story, I would say, is definitely the best one to turn into a TV series because you have the Native American struggle where they're equals and you have the history of the Seminoles, which are the one of the the only tribe they have to say that was not defeated by the by America and which is ostensibly true. They they were they did not lose to the American military machine. And that's a point of pride amongst natives. Definitely. But not only that, you have this synergy between John Horse, who's a black Seminole, and Wildcat, who is an indigenous Seminole, and they lead their people from Florida all the way to Indian Territory and then fight their way down through Texas to get to Mexico and then crisscross back and forth while they're trying to like stay alive in Mexico and fight off slave raiders who are coming across the border to steal their family and sell them into slavery. And then they end up fighting their way back into America. And now there are populations still in Mexico and in Indian Territory because of what they did. I mean, it's an American Moses story, but it's a two-headed story because you get it both from the Native perspective and the Black American perspective. And you can tie the Gullah Geechee people, the Carolina is i mean it has everything in that story and it's amazing because like there's like it starts with the at the end of war of 1812 you get this uh negro fort which was given to these black americans by their british commander who has abandoned them and said look we're out of here we, we've lost the war we're out but you can keep the fort and maybe fight for freedom so your opening scene is black people being given the weapons to fight for their freedom and then after that and then with their along with their native allies and now you have this like Boom, let's get into American history. I mean, it's a, it, it would be an amazing story, I think, to be told as a season. Yeah, 100%. So uh, before we go, I got I to gotta ask you, Nat Love's come up a few times. Yeah, sure. And we talked about Denzel Washington as uh, Bass Reeves. Who's who's your Nat, in your brain, who's oh. your Nat Love? You're casting Nat Love right now. Who's your guy? All right, this will sound wild because I don't think people would see it. Donald Glover, because oh, I yeah. think, yeah, Donald Glover has a masculinity he doesn't typically get to like settle in because he's been so much of like a, a, a entertainment nerd. And I know that he definitely has a lot more swagger to him. And we see, we see that in Atlanta. So I would like to see him now go on with that and become a black cowboy. And I think he could both uh, he could conjure up the, the, the fun that Nat Love has because he's kind of full of himself. But at the same time, also, I think he could be serious because I don't think we get to see except for in Atlanta, how Donald Glover can sit there in a moment and be still or be silent. And I would like to see him do that as a black cowboy. I think that would be fantastic. I agree. Dreadlocks. What? I think he'd look cool with dreadlocks and a cowboy hat. Yeah. And also like, yeah, I can buy young Lando Calrissian as a black cowboy. Like I can totally see it. So, So before we go, any, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Um, I would say that, uh, one thing in this story that I kind of like, wished I could have done more. And as stagecoach, Mary is a, is a black woman who features in the, in the show. She gets her own episode, but I wish I could have told more stories of the black and native women who are along, but mm-hmm. history doesn't provide us enough narratives to be able to tell their stories. And so I would, would love to be able to spend more time uncovering their stories so we could be able to tell their stories right now. We're at the process of uncovering them before we can really tell them. There is not enough there to uh, be able to tell at the same rate that I was able to tell the other stories. And that's just not fair to their experiences. So I would love to dig into the experiences of the black and native West 
from the uh, from the femme and female experience perspective. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, and so do you think there, with that in mind, do you think there will be like a, a season two of Black Cowboys? Uh, yeah, well, we're talking right now. Uh, iHeart and I, we have uh, we're talking about a season two. Uh, we have it set up. We just haven't decided uh, if it's going to be a season two of Black Cowboys, or if we're going to take the theme and move it. Uh, there's been discussion about doing something about Black explorers or Black mariners, uh, freedom on the sea. So we're, we're looking into a, def- a couple different approaches. That's amazing. Well, I, I look forward to any and all of it. Uh, for anybody at home that has not checked out Black Cowboys, I highly recommend it. It's wherever. If you're listening to this podcast, it's wherever you listen to this. It will also be there. So go go check it out. Uh, oh, uh, in two weeks, we have a show on Black Cowboys, on this the legacy of cinematic Black Cowboys. It, it was supposed to go this week, but uh, we had an issue with like getting all the rights and everything we wanted to do because there's a lot of like actual film clips but it focuses on uh, herb jeffries and woody strode who are two fantastic black cowboys i recommend people look into and definitely check out that show if you want to know more about cinematic black cowboys because we get into the whole history of the black cowboy on film yeah and that's i'm really looking forward to that because it's something i wish we could have uh, talked about more yeah. and it's and it's a bummer too because they exist especially like around the time of you know uh, black exploitation there was a lot of of westerns that are a part of that movement um and it's it's uh I look forward to checking that out, checking that episode out. Um, but again, thank you for coming on the show. If for remind the kids at home where they can find you. Uh, you can find me at Zarin3 at Twitter, and then you can find Black Cowboys, as you said, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and you can find me at DJ Talks Trash. You can follow this show at Only Stupid Answers everywhere that matters. But on Twitter, you're going to want to yank the vowels out of stupid. Uh, please give us five-star reviews and share and like and subscribe and all that stuff. We appreciate it. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much, DJ.